everyone. I'm Rachel Hurley from Sweetheart Pub. Welcome back to Music Rookie, the beginner's guide to the music industry. This week on the show is a conversation with Brandon Kinder, a musician who's been putting out records for over a decade with his band The Rocket Boys and his solo project The Wealthy West. He's also a VJ over on Diddy TV. His music has been compared to Bonnie Bear and Band of Horses and has been written about in Rolling Stone, Paste, American Songwriter, and many, many more. He's also landed sync licenses in dozens of commercials, films, and television shows. Now, since we've spoken to a sync agent and a music supervisor, we thought we would round out the trilogy with a musician's side of getting music placements. So let's jump right in. So basically what I really wanted to talk to you about this week was how you've made money as a musician, because I know you've managed to be a musician and not work a regular job. I know you have your Diddy TV thing. I don't know if there are other things that you don't do that I don't know about maybe. Um, But you know, that's always the goal for people is they want to be a full-time musician and not just doing it as a side hustle. And we, been talking to a lot of people about um, sync licensing, and I know that you've done a lot of that. I've talked to a music supervisor that I used to work for in New York and um, a sync agent last week. And so I think that from my understanding, that's been a big part of your life as a musician too. Yeah, definitely. Why don't we just kind of start at the beginning and give everybody kind of a general understanding of uh, who you are and where you come from. You're originally from Memphis, right? Yeah, I grew up here in Memphis and kind of started the musical like band journey here in Memphis. But then I moved to Texas and I was there for about 15 years. You know, when I met you, I think you were living in Austin. Yeah, yeah, we, I was. So did you start your band there? I actually started in a small town in West Texas called Abilene, Texas. The Rocket Boys started there in, depending on who you talk to, 2003 was our very first show. And then we like, you know, we were all in college and so we did what we could. Abilene was such a small town that we kind of had to think outside of Abilene. And so just touring just kind of came out of necessity if we wanted to play multiple shows. Was it a lot easier back then to tour and make money or was it always hard? It was, I think it was harder to make money back then for sure. You know, because it was a lot of just like tiny dive bars that you'd contact somebody and like, Lafayette, Louisiana, and trade a show back and forth. And there wasn't a lot of money. It was I was actually just talking to a, a friend of mine about like the old days of touring and how it used to be like you would just save up enough money so you could go on tour because you were never really making very much. Um, but we just, you know, we kept touring for, for several years and still like we're not, we're pr- Things have slowed down right now, but we still do some stuff occasionally. Have things things slowed down during the pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. So then we moved to Austin in 2009. And that's when we like really, I think 2008, 2009 is when we started really touring like all the time. And then it was actually because of we were at South by Southwest and we met a guy from L.A., that we had been kind of talking to a little bit who decided to manage us. And he came from the publishing world. And so with with that came a lot of new opportunities for syncs and, and all kinds of other non-touring things. Up until then, it had just been pretty much 
touring and trying to sell stuff on our web store and stuff, you know? I think a lot of people are um, kind of in the dark about the publishing world. Kind of means something different in different aspects where... Like I know in Nashville, uh, the publishing world is more like songwriting jobs. Like maybe you sit in a songwriter's room with other people and beat out a song and then you pitch it to a bigger songwriter and then they record it and then you're making money because you're getting the publishing off of music that you wrote. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that Beyonce just gets 10% whether she's there or not, which, you know, if it's, if you get if you score a Beyonce cut, like right, you're gonna be fine. That's a you know that's a fair thing to do, yeah. I guess. But yeah, so and then the other realm of it is kind of like we were talking about the sync licensing part. So, um, and I know that you've both gotten some of your songs had sync licenses for different um, movies and television shows, and you've been asked specifically to write for movies or television shows. So do you want to talk about kind of the different ways those things happened? Yeah, well, like I said, we, we started working with this manager um, out in L.A., and he just kind of brought his connections to us. And so a lot of it was just, you know, looking through our catalog and seeing, like, what would fit for this particular TV show or whatever. We got, you know, a ton of, like, no's and, you know, a few yeses, which was always made the no's, not heard as bad. But then after a while, yeah, I think just because whatever people that I, I was working with at the time kind of liked what I was doing, they started asking for things specifically and they knew that I could do it really quickly, which I think is key, especially in like in the film and TV world, it seems like music is always the very last thing that they do. And so it's usually like, okay, we're looking for a song like X and we need it by tomorrow at noon Pacific time. And so, you know, fortunately that gives me two more hours to work on it, but it's usually like really, really quick turnaround. And so I kind of had to get used to just coming up with something on the spot and just recording it, writing it, mixing it all just at once. That was definitely a challenge, but I think it, it helped me to grow a lot. It's, it's definitely gotten me a lot of opportunities just because I was able, if, if I didn't already have a song that fit what they were looking for, I could just give them something. Did it work that when they came and told you, because we want to get into the nitty gritty, you know, people always talk high level and really we people never talk about like just the minute details of things when it comes to stuff like this. Would they tell you, oh, we're looking for a happy song about love. And then you go through your catalog and say, well, what about these things? And then if they're like, no, that's not exactly right. Then you go back and kind of write the song or are you just writing the song off the top? Uh, yeah. So sometimes, you know, they'll, hopefully you get a little bit more information than happy song about love. Hopefully it's at least like, we like this song or we like this tempo range, things like that. So usually me and my manager will look through the catalog, see if we agree that anything is worth sending. And if not, and if we have time, then I usually don't have enough time to send them stuff, wait for a no, and then record something. So we make a lot of decisions on the front end on whether we think I have it. And you know, we kind of have worked with a lot of these people enough to kind of know what they're looking for in advance. And so we can kind of judge, I don't really have right now what, what's going to work here. So maybe let's, let's write the song instead of send them something that already exists because there's also at least like probably 10 other people that are being asked the same thing and they're either going to have it 
or be sending it in. So there's not really enough time to wait for a no. And then, you know, usually that's the case. They're, they're doing it kind of at the last minute and they're like, I just need it, need something by this time. So what happens if you write it and you send it in and they're like, this isn't it. Then you are sad for a moment and then you work, go to the next thing. But I'll tell you what, the thing that's that's been really encouraging for me is because that's that's happened to me more times than I can count. But the cool thing is if I work hard and I, I try and make a good product, then I'm going to have something good for the next time that they ask for a happy song about love that I can then turn in. And that that's happened multiple times where the first no turned into the second yes, even sometimes on the same the same shows sometimes. Are they like, you know, I want Marvin Gaye, what's happening vibe. Do they give you like notes like that where they don't want to pay for this song, but they want a song like that? Yeah, all the time. And like one of the problems too is that these are TV executives that don't speak the same language. And so, and they oftentimes don't know all the rules with publishing and master and all, all that stuff. They just know, I really like what's going on. I want it to sound exactly like that. And so sometimes like, Obviously, you can't just make it sound exactly like that. You just kind of have to fit that vibe. But yeah, I get stuff like that all the time. But for instance, I was doing a thing for Chase Bank one time. And I forget the song, but it was some like 60s, 70s era soul vibe. And I did this awesome version. And fortunately, I got a couple tries with them. But I did this amazing, super like vibey soul song that was just the perfect thing for what they were asking for. And then they're like, well, no. It's not exactly what we meant when we said remake this exact song. And then I ended up, I think the song ended up kind of being like a Coldplay vibe. They're like, oh, I love it. So, you know, sometimes there's a lot of communication errors that happen just because we're speaking two different languages. Right. So how does it feel to hear your um, music in a television show or a commercial? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, as a young musician, that was kind of always one of my goals was to be on like the Garden State soundtrack or the OC. That's where all the coolest bands were. Um, Just being on TV or a movie was always like one of the many dreams that I had. And so to be able to do that, it's always super cool. Does it ever feel like that part of your job is more like real work versus being a rock star musician like so i think so, sometimes i feel like that's kind of looked down upon right writing to code or i don't know how what you would call it but writing something specific rather than you know people thinking that i'm just going to sit around until i feel something and then write it yeah well every once in a while it does feel a little bit like a job but then I, I just have to look back and think like, how awesome is this job that I just get to sit here and make music that I that I like, even, you know, even if it's not what I would normally be making, I'm still going to make the version of it that I like. And so, yeah, it's always, it's never too much of a downer, uh, especially when you're making money from it. Of course. <laughs> and is that how you make most of your money? Yeah, it is. Yeah. We did, we did okay, like touring wise, but definitely like the big bills were paid from licensing. Right. And so can you talk about any of those numbers? What can people can expect? I, I, when we interviewed Dan Kobelwitz last week and I asked him that exact thing, I was like, what kind of rates are they? You know? And he was like, well, I don't want to be vague. And then he was vague. Um, <laughs> 
so what are those numbers like? I mean, people want to know, do I make $100,000 of a song in a commercial, a Chase Bank commercial, or am I making $2,000 off that? What are the different numbers? Well, it's always different. And I, and I feel like over the years, all the numbers are just going down and down. That's why I almost didn't want to come on here and talk to you because I didn't want to give away all my secrets because now there's more people looking for this one way to make money. Because yeah, there was, we did, for instance, we did a, um, a Friskies commercial used one of our songs and the Rocket Boys, the Rocket Boys. Because I know you have the Wealthy West too, which is more your solo project. Yeah. So I've, I have two, I actually have three, maybe four named projects out there, but they used a Rocket Boys song and it was like $35,000 and they used it like they re-upped it three times. Oh, wow. So, you know, that was split between, it wasn't just to me, it was split between a lot of people. One thing that's actually crazy about that commercial is they really liked this one song of ours. And so they were like, can we have the instrumental version of it? Which all, you always want to have your instrumental versions and your regular master. But we, at this point, we did not have the instrumental already. And so we went back and we contacted the engineer and we couldn't get in touch with them. And as I mentioned before, it's always like, we got to have it yesterday. And so after like hours of trying to get in touch with this guy, maybe like even a couple of days, I just re-recorded the whole thing like right there. Even though we re recorded the original at a studio, fortunately I was able to like still get the vibe and they never knew the wiser. You and the rest of the band recorded it together? This was like a pretty simple, like acoustic and organ type of song. So I didn't need the whole production. So let's talk, roll back and talk about what you just said about all the people that get paid. So like when that happens, I assume you're paying maybe a seek agent and a manager and the other people playing or the other songwriters or what, how does that work? Yeah. So on this one, we had to pay our management and we had to pay the people that were doing the sync stuff for us. And then all the different band members had their own split. This one, there weren't any co-writers outside of the band and we owned all the publishing. So that made it a little bit easier. And I will say people love when a one-stop shop. So if you can own your publishing and your master all outright, it'll make things a lot easier. So do you think it makes it harder for people on labels to get syncs or easier? It's it's just different, to be honest. I mean, there, there's kind of like maybe a couple different communities that are doing the work because the labels have like their own teams that are pushing it, but then there's also other people repping independent artists and they really want it to be like a one-stop thing. So it, on one hand, it's easier if you own everything, but you may not have as many opportunities because the labels probably have more relationships. And so it's kind of like, well, do I want to make X percentage of a lot more or a bigger percentage of a lot less? Bigger labels can also oftentimes like push for more money and stuff. So I guess that's kind of the issue with being on a label in general these days is yeah, you can have more money because you are getting paid for everything directly, but the labels have the contacts to get you on a TV show or to get you at on that big NPR interview or get you on the cover of a magazine and all that stuff. So it's like you take a risk of getting less right off the bat by going with a label, but there are more opportunities to do bigger things 
or you can work a little bit harder on your own and get there on your own. It's just a different path. Yeah, for sure. All right. So do you work with um, one particular seek agent or that you're, that can only pitch your music or are you working with many different people? Um, oh, can I go back a second? Sure. So the, the, the big Friskies commercial payout, that is like really, really high, especially mm -hmm. now. Like, I mean, I, it's not uncommon to get like, a two thousand to five thousand dollar thing. Sometimes, like, if you can get a couple hundred bucks out of like a college film or something, like, so there, it's it's a lot lower now, I think, than it used to be, just in general. And also because there's a lot more content being made, and so they just, you know, they can't afford to pay as much as they used to. It's all about those niche audiences. So there are smaller, more dedicated audiences across the board, right? Yeah, exactly. And I remember reading about how, remember when Grey's Anatomy first came out and uh, they were breaking all kinds of bands like uh, Snow Patrol, right? And um, they started off paying a lot. And then I read that by 10 years in, the rate had gone way down because they could say, hey, we broke all these bands or all these bands got bigger when, once they were on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Do you get pitched that way that this is great exposure? I mean, honestly, not as much for sync stuff, but definitely for everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were talking about our, uh, my next question was what about your seek agent? Are you working with one? Are you, you exclusive to them or do you have many people that you're working with? Yeah, well, I've done a few things over the years. I've mostly worked with one agent. It was never an exclusive deal on paper, but it was pretty exclusive. There was, there was a few things that came out of it that weren't from her directly, but it, for the most part, I tried to keep it in the family. And so do you, now that you've been doing this for a while, do you, are you getting like something once a month or is it once every few months or how often do these requests come in? I mean, before COVID and before they stopped making TV, I, I was probably getting stuff, you know, like every couple weeks requests. And then, you know, a lot of them I, I have to turn down or, or I just don't have time because I'm working on other parts of my music. But yeah, I mean, I probably get, you know, a couple, two or three, four a month or so. That's pretty decent. I mean, as long as they're paying something that like keeps it going, right? Because I'm sure a lot of people would be happy to get like one or two requests a year. Is that how it started for you? How quickly did it take off? Well, I was, I was thinking about that the other day. I think once we started working with this manager, we had just released a record, but I think it was probably about a year before anything happened from that. And then things just kind of started growing from there and we just started working with different um, music supervisors and stuff from different shows and just getting our name out there. I went out to LA a bunch and just had meetings with as many people as I could just to kind of, you know, get my name out there as a option for somebody to, to work with. Yeah, it was probably, you know, a handful of years before it started being a Thing we could count on. And so once you started meeting with music supervisors, are you able to bypass the agent and just have music supervisors come directly to you? Or do you always have to go through them? No, because the, the super or the agent does a lot more than just pitch. Like they're the ones that do all take care of all the paperwork and, and there's a lot of legal stuff that I mean I guess someone could do it without having a 
an agent that they're working with. Maybe if they had a lawyer. I know a lot of managers are actually lawyers. So yeah, if your manager was a lawyer, maybe you could bypass having a seek agent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you know enough supervisors, then by all means, but she was also like the one who got me in, into those rooms. And, you know, I, I liked, I liked that she was working hard for me. And so that I didn't feel the need. Plus I felt like if she was pitching it, that's what she does. I don't, I don't pitch stuff. And so she is the one that's getting all the requests. And so it, it made sense to me to, to not worry about trying to bypass that. So earlier you talked about being worried about coming on here and telling all your secrets. Can you tell us one secret? Oh, I've already told you like half of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I missed the secret part because all that stuff, you know, that's, I think a lot of times people think if I give away how I do this, then, you know, other people will be in competition with me. But really the thing is, is most people won't do the work. <laughs> you know, I can tell people how to be a publicist all day long. That's what we do in our newsletter. I tell you everything that I do and I'm not that worried about it because it's still a lot of work. And it takes, like you said, it takes years to like get your name in the door and for people to recognize who you are. And, you know, if someone's like, I can just, I can pitch NPR myself. I'm like, you go right ahead. <laughs> so I'm not, yeah, I don't think that there's a big worry for anyone to uh, take away from you by telling them how you do things. I think it, by telling people how you do things, you establish yourself as an expert in that field. It's true. Is there anything that um, you would give as advice for people that want to do this? Yeah. I mean, what, one thing, there would be no way I could do this if I wasn't able to record myself. And I started off, I mean, you, you should hear the first things that I that got on TV. It was like the worst sounding garbage, you know, but I was like, but it was interesting. Like it, I've gotten a lot better at recording now, but like anybody can learn how to kind of record. You've got to be able to do it yourself because a lot of these, literally, it's like, we need this by tomorrow morning. And if you don't have something that, that fits what they're looking for, then you you have to either make it yourself or turn it down, you know? So you had to take on an extra level of experience or work to get it done. Yeah. And I feel like there's plenty of like consumer grade things out there to, that you can start recording. What are your recommendations? I, um, for a long time, I've had an Apollo twin from Universal Audio and they're like maybe eight or $900, but that's the interface. So you can, you record into that and that goes into your computer. The UI Universal Audio stuff is like killer. It's really great. It's kind of, kind of an industry standard in a lot of ways. In the way the Pro Tools is, there's also like plenty of other DAWs out there that you could use, but I really like that. And, you know, you can get like, you can get any sort of interface. I know Focusrite makes like some one that's just a couple hundred bucks you can get. You just need to be able to record one or two channels, just get like a hundred dollar mics. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of an investment on the front end, but I mean, it'll pay in dividends. It'll be, you know, and then I've, I've definitely like upgraded over the years. And I see that you've got like a blanket on the wall. I guess that's for sound proofing. You kind of have to have a, your own space, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, you don't have to have your own space. If you have a laptop and something to record into it, like, I mean, plenty of people are making music entirely on their phones these days that can work, you know? That actually that's there because this house is like 90 years old and there's a window right there and you can just hear everything. There's like birds in all my recordings. All right. That's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I do have my own space, which is really nice. I can kind of 
do whatever I want. I've got a bunch of like random instruments and stuff. But you can do so much just on a computer these days. And just, you know, listen to what's happening on TV shows and try and like scientifically look into what they're doing. Like it's okay to do homework. You know, no, nobody is just born with that amount of talent and hasn't put in some work, you know. It's not not cool to understand what you're doing and why, you know. It's okay to know stuff. Yeah. Um. So do you have any upcoming projects that you want to talk about? Anything cool coming up? I know that we're all on lockdown and nothing's happening, but maybe we're working on something cool. Yeah, well, I'm working on a new Wealthy West record right now. I've kind of been, I don't know, this whole quarantine thing's just kind of bummed me out, like, creatively. I haven't really been as productive. I've done a, a lot of writing. I think I was just writing so I wouldn't have to record the album, to be honest. Like, just, oh, I got to find the, make sure I've got the right songs. But, but yeah, I just started working on that recently, and I'm just doing most of it here at my house as well. And so that's coming out soon. I just did this pretty cool campaign with this company. Can I, uh, this won't, this isn't like a commercial for them, but can I mention? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's this company. I don't, I heard about them on Facebook or Instagram called Least of All Sound Recording. Oh, yeah. I've set up one of those with Radner and Lee when their last record came out. It's when you record straight to vinyl. Yeah. 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 So you can do it that way, but they've opened it up and do this thing called shut-in sessions. So basically I asked a bunch of people, I like put it out there that I was going to do this project and it's pretty cool. I decided you can give the company whatever song list you want and then people choose from that. And I thought, cause I was working on this new record, it would be kind of cool, maybe a little bit of a gamble, but to just do songs from the new record that nobody's heard before rather than everybody's favorite songs, you know, and it actually like did really well. It sold out. And so now I have to record a bunch of personalized songs for these people, but it's going straight to vinyl. It's going to be super cool. What do you mean by personalized? Well, each one is a unique recording for that specific person that requested that song. Oh, I see. Like depending on, I think you can max out at five minutes. And so the song length is X. And so I could use the rest of that time, you know, give a little message, thank them for buying the album or something. Is that like something your hardcore fans wanted, ordered, or they order for other people? Yeah, it was crazy. Like a ton of people ordered them. I really didn't know what to expect, especially doing it this weird way where nobody's heard the song before. But I just thought that would kind of give a little more buzz to the album in general. Just give me something to talk about that's related to the album. Well, that kind of is a really special gift to send someone who is your fan. Here's a song you haven't heard. Yeah, nobody's heard. And, right? And I'm going to like leave a message on it for you. I mean, it's it's super cool. Right? And there's like no overhead for me. So it's just they print exactly how many are pre-ordered and then we just split, you know, a percentage of it. So it was like kind of a no brainer. You just send them the file. Yeah, exactly. So do you have a release date for this record? Do you know when it will come out? Are you just still figuring out? I'm guessing it'll probably come out sometime early next year. Are you on like a timetable with the Rocket Boys where you're like one year I do a Rocket Boys record, the next year I do a Wealthy West record or how does that work? I mean, kind of loosey-goosey in a way, yeah. And I I released another album earlier this year with a new band called Future Canyons that was just entirely for sync only. So it wasn't something that I wanted to like put out there and like promote and stuff, but it's a pretty cool project that I was working. I was working with this company in LA called Position Music. 
to just do this kind of one-off thing. It's it's worked out pretty well. It's like they've gotten a couple small. I mean, you know, COVID happened as soon as I released it. So, but they they've still like got it on a couple things here and there. So I'm just always trying to like have like a few irons and a few different fires. You know, that could be another secret. Form a second band and write music just thinking about this would sound great in a commercial or this would sound great in a in an end credit or whatever yeah totally yeah i mean people do that a ton of people do that the reason i found out about them is because my friend had a secret band through the same company and he like introduced me to them a lot of supervisors like the idea that they're going to be the one to break the artist because it's on their show and so a lot of people want it to be a band and not just some guy so right there's just so many rules and they don't apply half the time and sometimes they do you know but i feel like it makes sense to have a band identity for some of this stuff especially if you don't already have a lot of relationships in the industry people want to help a band you know everybody that's not playing on a stage that is in the music business does it because they love music and want to help the people that are making it, you know? And so they want to be a part of lifting that band up to, to stardom, you know? It makes them feel like it's more authentic. Yeah, exactly. It's not just some canned music or anything. Or just some guy that sits in his basement or his extra room <laughs> making music for specific uh, shows. Exactly. So how far do you have to go with this secret band idea? Do you have to set up social media for it or a website or is it just like... I don't, there, I don't have a website, but I think I did set up like all the main social media sites. Just in case something happens or, you know, like if I, you know, if something happens, then I can like thank the people that are involved from that page, you know. Right. And so does it happen with you now since you have so many different projects that you go to start writing a song or write some music and you start out and you're like, this is a Rocket Boy song. No, this is a Wealthy West song. No, this is a Canyon. What was it called? Future Canyons. Yeah. Future Canyon song. Not as much anymore. But when I was first starting, the Wealthy West basically was just a side project that my management forced me into back in 2011. I was just writing a bunch of music, you know, it was mostly for the Rocket Boys, but then there were some times where it didn't really fit, but it wasn't going anywhere else. And so my managers were always trying to convince me to do something with this extra music because they thought it was cool. And then I was always like, no, nah, I just want to focus on the Rocket Boys. And then it was, I think the year South by Southwest 2011, they were like, okay, well, you really got to do something with this project because we've got it picked up on like three TV shows and Paste Magazine wants you to play their South by Southwest party. I was like, okay, I guess like, I'll see what happens. I'll, I'll do something with it. And then it's been great ever since then. And I kind of know who I'm writing for. But like you mentioned before, it, it's better if I can just give the time to each one. So whenever I'm done writing a Rocket Boy album, then I'll kind of allow myself to get back into the Wealthy West frame of mind. And, you know, but I'm also just constantly writing other stuff that I can, you know, see where it can fit in. How many songs do you think you write a year? Just write or release? Yeah, I just write. I mean, probably 50 or 60. It's probably kind of low, maybe. I wouldn't say more than 100 songs, though. But I mean, I'm, I write like all the time, you know, because it's my job. It's what I do. So Right, right. Yeah. 
Um, it's interesting because I won't mention who the artist was, but um, I was in the online conference today and this person was complaining a little bit about due to COVID and the way that the music business works now. This person was expected to know how to record themselves doing a live stream and do things at home and create content. Her bit her big thing was about creating content, you know, that now this was like an extra layer of responsibility that she didn't really like having on her. But I feel like all these things, because obviously I'm a publicist, but you know, we delve a little bit into marketing too, because it's kind of similar. It's not exactly the same thing. And you know, but the artist needs help with it and definitely talking about social media with them and content creation and you know, it's all these extra things and new things that I have to figure out or dive into or read about that kind of keeps everything interesting for me. I think that if you only had one thing you were doing over and over and over again, it would get pretty boring. So I assume because you have so many different irons in the fire, it kind of keeps things fresh. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that's probably the a huge complaint with a lot of people is just ma having to make content, you know, like all of a sudden I'm expected to be an expert at something and talk about it all the time when I just want to make music. But I think, you know, the music business is always changing. There's always new rules and some people will excel at, at following the trends and some people will get stuck behind, you know? I just think people forget that there's only a very short amount of time in the 20th century that people were able to take music and become multi multi-millionaires with it, right? We're able to make all this money and live these dream lifestyles, just like a 50 year period, really, you know? Yeah where it was really open to the masses and you didn't have to come from a, a great, a rich background to even be able to take lessons or uh, buy instruments or all that, you know, over the course of humankind, people have always made music, but they didn't make money from it. And so now people are having to do a little bit extra and do different things and learn new ways to do things and be creative. And, you know, I think they're pissed that they aren't, you know, it's like not 1982 and there's only three radio stations. And if you're good, then they play you 10 times an hour, whatever it is. You got to do all these other things. And yeah, I mean, the music creation is so easy right now. I mean, anybody can make music that sounds pretty good. You know, it may not be a great song, but it could sound great. And so there's just so much to choose from. So yeah, you really got to set yourself apart somehow and, and grab people's attention. Well, cool. I mean, I think you gave us a lot of good information. I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in hear this stuff just because it is a, a new thing. I, one of the other things I heard on in this online conference today from the president of Rounder, I think that's who it was, was talking about how really after a record comes out, it's usually 12 months away from getting a sync license. It's does nothing happens quickly. Even once they get that music out to people that can pitch it, it's a long ride. And for you, I think it's just like, it's ended up being cyclical. You know, you've got enough irons in the fire that you've got things coming back. So anyone starting out, it's going to take a long time to get it going. But once you get it going, it'll keep going. Yeah, exactly. And now, I mean, for the last album, I had syncs before the album came out, you know, like from that out, you know, so that's, that's been my experience. But yeah, it's because I just, I'm constantly working and putting out new stuff, whether it's a band idea or, or just something 
for sync only. So would you say that's the main uh, way that you make your money back on making records is through sync licensing? I would say that has a lot to do with it. But also, I mean, I sell albums and I, people stream my albums. And since I own all the publishing then, and all the masters, for the, for the most part, I'm not dying on, on Spotify. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. So I think that people are still trying to figure out, can they sell enough records to make it worth their while? I mean, it is crazy because like, especially just if we're talking physical CDs, like bands still sell them. I still sell them here and there, but like, I don't even have a CD player. Most of my friends don't have CD players. And so, you know, you used to order like minimum of a thousand CDs when you first, you know, we're about to go on tour after the album came out. And then now it's like, well, do I even need a thousand? Should I just get 500? Am I going to sell 500 CDs? Like, and I just think it matters if like, if you have a hardcore fan base and they want the experience of buying a CD from you, maybe having you sign it. And it's like a trinket, right? Like it's, you're buying a memory of like being able to buy a really nice poster. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is they don't, it doesn't have to be the CD. It could be a poster. Now it could be a t-shirt. It could be a keychain. It could be any type of merchandise. Well, is there anything we didn't cover that you think is important? I think we've covered just about everything. I mean, I would say, yeah, the, the main things that I've tried to do is just be aware of what's on TV and how like the directions that I think I'm capable of following and then just be able to do it yourself quickly. That'll, that'll get you pretty far if you work hard enough. Do you have a catalog of soundtracks you go to? I remember I used to buy soundtracks and movies in the 90s. I mean, do like the Batman Returns or Batman Forever soundtrack, I think. I brought like Benny and June. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do they do that anymore? Uh, they do. There's still soundtracks to movies, and there are still like kind of music-based television shows that put out soundtracks. I know that, um, you know, I think Killing Eve has a soundtrack because it's got a really strange music. I don't know what you call it. There, I, I know when I watched, first watched Killing Eve, I was like, who is this music supervisor? Because this music is crazy. And I had to go check out all, you know, where they got all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I love when I watch a new show and it's just like, this supervisor is killing it. Like these songs are all so cool. I would love to get on. And they're almost like a second character. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, music, TV, film without music would be so boring, I think. Well, I don't know. The Office was pretty funny. I don't think there's much music on there. But yeah, like it, it really, it can set a scene. It can make you trust or not trust a character. Like it can do so much to enhance what's happening for sure. Set the scene. Well, thanks so much for letting me chat your ear off a little bit. Oh no, I love it. And thanks for giving us all your secrets. Oh, my pleasure. And there you have it. Thanks again to Brandon Kinder for taking the time to chat with me. To sum it up, in order to really use sync licensing as a tool to bring in a regular income, you have to have a lot of irons in the fire at all times. It's also highly recommended that you be able to record stuff on the fly and be a one-stop shop when it comes to publishing. You might even want to start your own secret band that just makes music that works for syncs. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more insider information just like this, be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. You can sign up on sweetheartpub.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to be notified when the next one comes out. If you have a specific question about this episode or anything at all, 
feel free to reach out. You can tweet me or shoot me an email. I'm not hard to find. The music in this episode was created by Frank Keith of Great Peacock. Big thanks to Brandon Kinder for producing this episode. Now, go do something useful.